Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. My heart often sinks at the prospect of the cinema's favourite season, the school holidays. These are traditionally the fortnights of great profits, in which bored captive audiences collide with the big movie studios at their most crass and venal. It's the fairy tale princess story that's exactly like the last fairy tale princess story. It's the fourth film of that kid series with the ponies. It's the next, but certainly not the last, gigantic DC Marvel movie starring Captain Iron Woman. Or it's James Bond again. Boca martini. Chicken and stir. Do I look like I give a damn? Now, don't get me wrong, nobody loves a massive waste of time and popcorn more than I do. I'm usually there, surrounded by young folks spilling soft drink down the back of my neck while I do the same to the people in front of me. But that's because there's generally no choice. These massive blockbusters take over most of the movie screens in town, and so these are what you have to see. Beggars, as always, can't be choosers. Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here? But of course, that was then, and the now we're currently in has been essentially blockbuster-free for months. These films are waiting to be let out of their factories, but not yet. So these holidays, there's a bit of choice for a change, led by some slightly puny family fare, including animated movie Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarfs. Magic tree, magic tree, eternal beauty. My shoes! No! Now, long before this Korean-produced spoof on Disney-style fairy tales was released, its selling point, our heroine isn't that attractive once she takes the magic shoes off, ran into big trouble. The easily offended, and let's face it, that's all of us these days, isn't it, accused the not-that-attractive version as fat-shaming. And presumably the seven dwarfs were short-shamed, too. It's my shoes. They're magical. I think we're both just trapped under the same spell. But I can't wait for you to see the real me. So, pass on Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarfs as much as anything because a year of K-pop has produced a certain amount of unconscious bias against the phrase Korean-produced spoof of Disney. Even more colourful is something called Trolls World Tour. What could that be about? There are other kinds of trolls. Our ancestors created six strings, each for a different type of music. Rock, country, techno, classical, funk, and hip-hop. Tiny, tiny diamond is my name. Before COVID-19, I would have had to see Trolls World Tour. Sorry, no choice. But not this week. 
Choice, I'm spoilt for it. It's really bleak out there for middle-aged singers. In the history of music, only five women over 40 have ever had a number one hit. And only one of them was black. That's high note with those maddening statistics. Who were these five women? Madonna? Tina Turner, Aretha, Cher. Actually, it's surprising anyone has a number one after they turn about 25, though there's always Captain Tom Moore, aged 100. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. Well, enough of the top ten, that haven of the greedy and the self-obsessed. Though, interestingly, the most intriguing films this week are mostly about greed. It's the title of the second Michael Winterbottom-Steve Coogan collaboration in as many weeks. And also, lies and embezzlement at the heart of the oddly titled Burnt Orange Heresy. But first, the power of art at a time of civil unrest. White Riot. White Riot deals with events over 40 years ago, but it often sounds depressingly contemporary. Britain in 1967 had been called the Summer of Love. Britain 1976 had become the Winter of Discontent. There were strikes and angry protests in the streets. There was terrorism. There was the hideous National Front. And suddenly there was punk. I was asked, would he come down and photograph the punk night? Suddenly, the clash come on and bang! There was this incredible cultural explosion going on. In the States, they preferred to call it punk rock, but in London, it was just punk, and it came in several flavours. There was pure anarchy led by the Sex Pistols. There was social justice championed by the clash. And there was something else. It was a scary moment because punk could have gone either way. Some of the bands did have NF following. The National Front were growing incredibly. Keep our country free from invasion! They're not English! They don't belong here! Punk had a huge following amongst the National Front kids, and the people who'd originally discovered the punk bands, fiercely anti-racist and left-wing, thought there was an opportunity here. Show these disaffected kids a better way through music. We said what we need to do is do a, a gig, thing called Rock Against Racism. We're against racism in all facets of British life. We want rebel music, street music, music that breaks down people's fear of one another, music that knows who the real enemy is. Love music, hate racism. All a little naive, especially in 1976. You have to remember who was leading the right-wing attitudes in Britain. Enoch Powell was a very high-profile conservative politician when he started shaking his fist at immigrants. And he was joined by other more distressing figures, among them David Bowie and Eric Clapton. During a drunken rant between songs, Clapton expressed his support for the controversial political figure Enoch Powell who in the late 1960s had risen to prominence with an inflammatory speech against the Labour government's Race Relations Act. 
So, fighting rock superstars with punk yobbos came an outfit called Rock Against Racism, whose leaders tell their story in White Riot. Red Saunders was a freelance photographer for the NME, Roger Huttle was a typesetter, and their office manager was someone who simply went by Irate Kate. The energy and the potential of it was what pulled all these people on board. People in the room were artists and writers and political activists. It was immediate. I thought, this is a gang I'd like to join. Between them, Rock Against Racism set up concerts offering a blend of white and black bands and put out a giveaway news sheet called Temporary Hoarding. The concerts backed the activism, the activism publicised the concerts and suddenly a lot of people began to realise just how dangerous the National Front was. At that time there was a massive amount of police picking up black youth. I met this man, Red Saunders, he was like, we've got to get together, we've got to build something. Originally treated as a sort of joke mini-Nazi party with as much credibility as Screaming Lord Such's monster-raving loony party, the front became scarily omnipresent. And every time there was an NF march, there was another riot. Rock Against Racism was white people finally waking up to the fact that there's racism here. The thing to do is get involved in outside organisations with white people, with black people. The only way we can do it is together. Focusing the mind was the fact that there was an election on its way as the exhausted Labour government went to the polls and there were fears the National Front might even get into Parliament. It was a challenge to the Rock Against Racism crowd, who by now included The Clash, of course, but also X-Ray Specs, Pauline Black and the always welcome Tom Robinson. We were interested in the idea of people being able to express themselves and that the expression itself was a political act. Black, white, together, tonight and forever. White Riot reminds us that for black artists it was more than just being able to play where and when they wanted to. They were constantly in danger from National Front skinheads with very little help from the police, whose behaviour at the time came under increasingly critical scrutiny. Rumours circulated throughout the area. Some said it was started by the police attempting to arrest a pickpocket. Others said the police had tried to break up a fight amongst some youths. And another rumour, so far unproved, said the police had raided the Mangrove, a local West Indian cafe. White Riot comes to a head with Rock Against Racism's Finest Afternoon, a march from the centre of London to Victoria Park and one of the biggest concerts of the year. The establishment was sceptical. Who do these punks think they are? We're going to march from Trafalgar Square to Vicky Park, get a stage, build it, got to have the clash, absolutely great energy punk band. The police were ridiculing us, saying nobody's going to come to this march. The numbers just kept coming. But the end result was a triumph, albeit a temporary one. It was hailed as a victory for people power when, subsequently, the National Front was trounced in the polls. In this society, we're made to feel powerless and useless and that the great and the good should do our thinking for us. And one of the wonderful things that we did in Raw was to say, no, it's just ordinary people. We can do things. We can change the world. But sadly, so were a lot of other people. Margaret Thatcher won that election and power shifted from the idiot right wing of the National Front skinheads to the rather more insidious right wing of the neoliberals. Forty years later, these battles are still going on.
Nobody could accuse English writer-director Michael Winterbottom of resting on his laurels. Immediately after, or possibly during, the comedy drama The Trip to Greece with Steve Coogan, Winterbottom's already made another film, also mostly set in Greece and also starring Steve Coogan. It's called Greed. Now time for the man you've all been waiting for, the king of the high street. You've been described as the unacceptable face of capitalism. I've done nothing wrong. The trailer for Greed has confused some audiences who like to know in advance whether they're being invited to watch a scathing attack on an unscrupulous multi-millionaire or a congratulatory puff piece, the sort of thing Sir Richard Branson might drum up. How bad is it? You know one reads the mail online. It's cleavage clickbait. Yeah, except I'm the tit this time. Actually, there are several similarities between Branson and the fictitious Sir Richard MacReady, nicknamed by the tabloids Greedy MacReady for obvious reasons. MacReady made his billions in the rag trade, aided and abetted by his equally mercenary wife and now ex-wife, Samantha, played by Isla Fisher. This is Nick. He's chronicling my life. He just loves money. He paid himself and his wife £1.2 billion. This is for all of you. Not literally, but I mean, (laughs) thank you. The tagline for greed is irresistible. The devil is in the retail. But most of the action takes place away from MacReady's high street stores and at his tax haven mansion on the Greek island of Mykonos. He's throwing himself a birthday party and everybody's coming, whether they like it or not. We've been working on this party for over a year. He wants it to repair his reputation. It's all about image. The super yacht, the models. It's all part of a brand. At the same time, MacReady is being trailed by his biographer, Nick, played by David Mitchell. Nick's tasked with getting everyone in Sir Richard's life not only to express how much they love him, but actually to say happy birthday on camera. Even people working in his sweatshops in Sri Lanka. He was his own man from the start. What is the average wage in Sri Lanka? 50p a day. Imagine how many dresses I can get made. He was a bully. Not you had to shake my hand. Plans are drawn up, then often ignored for a party based on a Roman circus, but a Roman circus constantly saving money by cutting everyone's fees. Meanwhile, Nick tries to pick up more material from his bosses near and dear. I did it for the money. Hi, you're the fashion editor. Yes. Did you expect me to look a bit more like a model? Of course not. <laughs> Not that you... you look great. Well, perhaps not exactly dear. Even Greedy McCready's hard-nosed mother, played as a sort of Irish poison dwarf by the fabulous Shirley Henderson, has hardly a good word to say about him. Or about McCready's offspring, who are even shallower than him, just not as successful. Where are the children? Finn sleeps all day, he's pale, he looks like a vampire. And Lily was here, but she's gone off with the reality TV show. Oh, what's all that about? Why would you want your life splashed all over the telly, Francis? me. And on the outskirts of the action are all the people hired and underpaid to boost MacReady's ego. There's no public relations disaster, he thinks, that can't be overcome by a public relations triumph. In this case, one involving a real lion to make up for the shortage of real celebrity guests. Angelina's now a maybe. Ed Sheeran's a no. You, you can get doubles. Quick question, are you out of your mind? The lookalikes. Yeah, Simon Cowell. He's good, yeah. yeah. Looks like Rod Stewart's bitter older brother. Is that George Michael? George Michael's dead. 
This is a snapshot of today's robber barons, the people who dodge taxes everywhere they go, renege on every deal and rip off the poorest people in the world because they can. In its way, greed is just as committed to bringing them down as anything by Ken Loach. It was a parasite. It's classic tax avoidance. Go away. Look at that. You can't buy a view like that. Oh, wait, no, I have. The difference is that Loach tells his stories entirely from the point of view of the underdogs, the people who suffer most under a grossly unfair system that no government, left or right, seems able or willing to dismantle. What noise? I'm in the business of loud. Why have you got the lion? We're recreating Gladiator. By contrast, Michael Winterbottom shines a light firmly at the people benefiting, the celebrity jet-setters who live only for fame and money, even if they're less sure what to do with it once they've got it. Coogan and Isla Fisher are very convincing as today's glitterati, sipping champagne and sniping at each other's plastic surgery. Is that a push-up bra or are they new? Are those teeth fake? Put them in a glass. Take them out. Yeah, because it costs 20 grand. Well, these cost 10k. This is greed at its purest form. People like the McCready's don't want anything specific, they just want more. And they don't understand anyone who thinks that simply wanting more is somehow not enough. That's fuchsia. Yeah, fuchsia. Fuchsia's bit in your face. I want in your face. I am in your face. Like, I'm sure, most of you, I'd never heard of the source novel of a new film called The Burnt Orange Heresy, though it is one of those titles that you need to repeat several times before it sinks in. But you can't deny the attractive cast on the poster. Two fascinating veterans, Donald Sutherland and Mick Jagger, and two stars on the rise, from Denmark, Klaus Bang, and Australian Elizabeth Debicki. You're not really how I imagine an art critic would look. Can't tell me you never wanted to paint. The Burnt Orange Heresy was written by American crime novelist Charles Wilford back in 1971, though for some reason it feels older. I'm not the only one who detects a touch of Patricia Highsmith's Ripley novels in the tone. The story deals with four people who, one way or another, all trade on lies and secrets. I single-handedly made you believe that this was a masterpiece. You believed... You have to admit it. That, my dear friends, is the power of the critic, and that's why you should be careful with someone like me. <laughs> that's art critic James Figueres, who spent the last few years demystifying art criticism. Though you get the idea he's getting a bit sick of it. But he knows the power of the art critic, the expert who can add or subtract value to a work with a stroke of his pen. And there are other perks, too. Seriously, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I was never a kid. You're one of those. On a wedge. A liar. Yeah. Her name, she says, is Berenice, a beautifully judged performance by Elizabeth Debicki, an actress who's been on the verge of something better for a while now. Berenice has left small-town America under some sort of a cloud and she's trying out the role of arm candy with people like James. Ever heard of Joseph Cassidy? The art dealer? Mm-hmm. Been invited to his estate. You got rich friends. 
James takes Berenice to Lake Como in Italy to meet the celebrated art dealer Joseph Cassidy, a role that shows that Mick Jagger can actually act. He was just too rich and famous to ever take it seriously. Cassidy dangles an attractive proposition in front of James, the chance to interview the most famous reclusive artist in the world, Jerome Debney. If you could interview any living artist, who do you think it would be? At the edge of my property, there's a dilapidated little house. In this house, there's an artist. No critic has spoken to this guy in over 50 years. Well, James can't believe his luck, but first he has to persuade the unpersuadable Debney to go along with it. And Debney, a gloriously cryptic Donald Sutherland, seems far more interested in silent strolls with Berenice than interviews with the nakedly ambitious James. Jerome Debney. It's an honour, Mr Debney. Think of the splash it would make. See and describe his current work. No, no, no. I cannot abide such things. The particular attraction for James and for Cassidy the dealer, even for Berenice, now a fan of the sophisticated Debney, is that no one has seen a genuine Debney painting for 50 years, ever since a famous fire in Paris destroyed the artist's life's work. You could be running a major museum soon. And why would you do this for me? I'd value a Debney, James. And I'd like you procure one for me. But it's clear that not one of the four lead characters is telling the complete truth, and at least two of them plan to do whatever it takes to not only get their hands on a genuine modern masterpiece, but find a way to raise its value. But what is the meaning behind Debney's unseen work, The Burnt Orange Heresy? Does it mean anything at all? What is this about? Redemption, embezzlement and forgery. Kind of underhanded, don't you think? You know what we need to do. The Burnt Orange Heresy feels like something from another era. Authors like Chandler and Highsmith, Eric Ambler and Daphne du Maurier. These characters are elusive and slippery. Anti-heroes, women on the make and people not quite as smart as they think. Are you a swimmer? One link, underwater... And I'll speak with you. But, Mr. Debney, Two I... links. If your next word is anything but yes, it'll be four links. I certainly had no idea where the burnt orange heresy was heading after the first major twist, and I stayed with it, admiring its skill rather than being lured in by the, frankly, mostly unappealing quartet of crooks and liars. Most people are not what you'd expect. You know, don't you? They won't. No reflection on the acting, though. It's the best I've seen Jagger in a straight drama, though I have higher hopes for Elizabeth Debicki in something a little more worthy of her talents. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.